Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at just verse 8 today. We're working our way through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, I was going to go through, uh, cover 8 through 10, um, but I, early on in my studies this week, I realized that there's too much, and so we're going to save uh, verses 9 and 10 for next week. And even though we're going to just focus in on verse 8, what I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 10 of, of 1 Timothy chapter 2 so that we can get the context uh, for this passage. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of, our God, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This concludes the reading of God's word. Let's look to him uh, for prayer. Father, I do pray that as we come to the preaching of your words, that we would humble ourselves before you. I pray that we would tremble at your word. I pray that we would once again see this not as suggestions, but as commands, Lord. I pray that you would teach us something. I pray that you would convict us, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would actually be doers of the word, that we would put into practice what we have learned today. I pray that you would speak to us. And I pray, God, that we would never in this church put up a hindrance uh, to getting the gospel out into this community and beyond. Guide us today, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin uh, today by reading a story. Um, I don't usually read uh, lengthy stories, but I'm going to start by uh, doing that today because this story really ties in what we talked about last week and what we're going to talk about uh, this week. And so this is a fictitious story, um, but hopefully it'll drive the point home. So here it goes. Uh, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred stood a life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many of those who were rescued and also others from the surrounding area wished to become associated with the station and to give their time, money, and effort to, to support its work. New boats were bought and new crews trained. The life-saving station grew. In time, some of the crew became concerned that the station was so crude and poorly equipped 
They felt that a more commodious place uh, should be provided as the first refuge of those snatched from the sea. The emergency cots were replaced with beds, and better furniture was purchased uh, for the enlarged building. The station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely. Fewer members were now interested in leaving the plush station to go to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired surrogates to do that work. However, they retained their life-saving motif in, a club's, in the club's decoration, and a ceremonial lifeboat lay in the room where the club initiations were held. One dark, stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick and obviously from distant shores. The station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that the people uh, contracted for outbuildings to be constructed uh, so future shipwrecks could be processed with less disruption. Eventually, a rift developed in the station. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the station's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to their normal social life. Some insisted, however, that rescue was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But the latter were ignored and told that if they wanted to keep life-saving as their primary purpose, they could begin their own station down the coast, which they did. Over time, those individuals fell prey to the same temptations as the first group, coming to care more about comforting one another than rescuing the perishing. After a while, a few, remembering their real purpose, split off to establish yet another life-saving station, and on and on it went. Today, if you visit that seacoast, you will find a number of impressive life-saving stations along the shore. Sadly, shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but most people are lost. Last week, we talked all about God's desire to save all people. That was, the, that was our focus, and, and, and God wants to save people and see them come to the knowledge of the truth. And what I said last week is this, that if that is God's desire, then we as his people, that should be our desire as well. Our desire should be to see people saved and coming to the knowledge of the truth. But sadly, what happens in churches is that sometimes we get so wrapped up in doing church that we forget our basic message of bringing salvation to those who are lost and drowning in sin. We become more concerned about our programs and we forget the reason why those programs were ever instituted to begin with. We develop a certain degree of, of comfort in our churches and we like that and we don't want to be disrupted by outside people coming in that might disrupt that. We forget that God has not called us to a life of ease but that God has called us to a life of radical obedience, a life of, of taking up our cross on a daily basis and following him and pursuing people even in the messiness of their life, even though it may make us uncomfortable at times. The condition of a person's soul is infinitely more important than the state of the physical church building. Now we do seek to take care of this church. We, we make repairs. We put money into the church. But at the end of the day, it's far more important that people are saved. And that should be our mission. To that end, what we see here 
is that Paul wants to remove any hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel. Anything that would hinder it from going out, Paul is like, we have to stop this. We have to get it out of the way. And so what we saw last week is we looked at verses 1 through 7, and we saw, if you will, the external oppositions, where Paul says, pray for your governing officials so that you can live a peaceful and quiet life, so that there's no laws being passed that would hinder the gospel from going forward but that you could do it unhindered. So that was the external. And here today and next week, what he does is he focuses internally. And he says, those were the external obligations, now, uh, obstacles. Now let's, uh, let's tackle the internal obstacles, the quarreling and fighting that's going on and the self-serving motives that you have. Because those equally hinder the gospel proclamation. So that's what we're going to look at today, just the first one of those. And as we dig into this passage, let me remind you that every single word in this Bible is inspired by God. There are no arbitrary words here. And the reason that I remind you of that is because Paul, here when he singles out men specifically, it's because the men in the church were not doing something that they were supposed to do or they were doing something that they were not supposed to be doing. And when he singles out women specifically— He's singling them out because they were doing something that they were not supposed to be doing or not doing something that they were to be doing. And so he's singling them out with a specific purpose because this is what exactly what was going on in the church. And I say that because in verse 8 when he says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without wrath or quarreling. I don't believe that he's saying it's only men who can pray in church. What he's saying is that the men, the way that they've been praying has been dishonoring to God because there's quarrels and fights. Because if he was saying women couldn't pray in church, then it seems to me like that would be a contradiction of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 33, where it says this, but every wife, which is a woman, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So it seems like women are permitted to pray in the church. He's just saying, here's what the men are doing. And they're doing it in a wrong way. They need to stop what they're doing. Apparently, this, at this point, it didn't seem to be a big problem with the women for whatever reason that was. The women, as we'll see next week, were trying to draw attention to themselves through these elaborate um, outfits that they were wearing, gold up uh, all woven into their hairs and jewels and stuff like that, and just turning heads because of the way that they looked and distracting from worship. But both of these situations were a distraction. They were hindering the gospel from going forward, and so Paul addresses them. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how we are to pray. How we are to pray. Um, Let me just say this before we get into that, is, is prayer is essential. It is absolutely essential to the life of the church, both individual prayer and corporate prayer as well. It is absolutely essential to the life of the church. And so let me just stop and ask you this question. Do you really understand the importance and the power of prayer? Do you really, really, think about that for a moment before you answer even, you know, in your head. Do you really understand the importance and the power of prayer? Now, if you say yes, the way that that is demonstrated is actually in your life. It's demonstrated in the day-to-day. How much time do you spend each week or each day in fervent prayer to God? Because you can say it's important, but if you're not doing it, you're demonstrating from your life that it's not really important. You've heard me say this before. If I say, man, I am so, my number one concern is that my neighbors become Christians. 
and then you don't see me witnessing to them for a month or two months, you can conclude, no, that's not your number one concern because it's not evident in your life. And so you could say, yes, I understand the importance of prayer. Prayer is important, and yet you're not doing it is demonstrating that really, you know, it's really not that important to you. Prayer, I want to remind you, is absolutely essential. And I can't emphasize this enough. I believe that prayer is to the spirit what breathing is to the body. You need it. You cut it off and you, and, and, and you can't function anymore. Let's think about this for a second. Um, let, let's talk about the physical act of breathing. When you breathe in, what you are doing is you're breathing in oxygen. And the oxygen goes into your lungs and then it gets into the heart and into the bloodstream. And then the bloodstream takes it and takes it to every single cell in your body, bringing that life-giving oxygen that your cells need. And then at the cellular level, what happens is that as that oxygen is, is going into the cell, waste products such as carbon dioxide are being taken out of the cell, put, uh, cells put back into the bloodstream, go back to the heart, into the lungs, and then you breathe it out. If you don't get enough oxygen, if your oxygen supply is cut off, that's a really bad thing, right? And the other is true too. If you don't breathe out that carbon dioxide and that builds up, that is a very, very bad thing. Prayer is just like that. When you pray, what you are doing, in, what are you doing is you are breathing in, if you will, the promises of God. And you are breathing out the sin that's in your life. You're breathing in those life-giving promises of God that are found in the Bible. And if you don't, you become weak and you, bec and you become unable to function. And so what are, just, a, just to let you know, what are some of these um, life-giving promises that we are to breathe in on a daily basis to remind ourselves of? Let me, let me just give you a few. The first is that you breathe in remembering what God thinks of you and what God has done for you. That's very important to do every day of your life, to breathe in, to remind yourself of, of, of what God thinks of you and, and what he's done for you. You need to remember that God loves you. Yes, you. You're thinking, I'm unlovely. But the Bible says even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. God rejoices over you, as the prophet says, with singing. God has inscribed your name on the palm of his hand. He loves you. You need to know that you are chosen, that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, that you are gifted, that he has empowered you with his Holy Spirit. You need to know that nothing in this world or in the next world will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And you need to know that Jesus will never, ever leave or forsake you. We need to be reminded of that daily. And if you don't breathe in these promises daily, then what will happen is that you will suffocate, spiritually speaking. Satan will come and he will strangle out those promises of God. He will seek to, to strangle you. And he will come to you and say, you're not loved. Come on. You've been struggling with these same sins for what? Five years? Ten years? Twenty years? A true person, a true child of God, would not struggle with this anymore. You're not loved. And plus, you're not strong. You're weak. You're the weakest person that I've ever seen. And he comes, and he just, he just uh, 
beats us up and strangles that life out of us. We need to breathe in the promises of God and say, no, I am loved. The Bible says that I am loved. I am strong. I'm strong because of the power that God has given me. But not only are we to breathe in those uh, promises like those, but we are also to breathe out our sin. And the way that we do this is through what's known as confession, where we confess our sins, where the Holy Spirit brings them to mind. This is what you did this week. This was offensive to God. And we stop and we say, God, this is exactly what I did. And what I'm going to do now is I am going to get this out of my life. I'm going to confess it to you. I'm going to ask for your forgiveness, and then I'm going to turn away from it. I don't want these waste products in my life anymore because they are hindering me. So just like holding in the carbon dioxide would cause major problems, so holding in sin will cause major problems. So what are the sins in your life that you need to confess and get out? Those things are hindering you spiritually from accomplishing the goals that God has desired for you to do. So we all must acknowledge our sin, confess it, and turn from it. And so here's what I want to ask you. If you are weak today, if you feel like you're weak spiritually, if you feel like there's no power in your life, spiritually speaking, if you feel like you're losing the battle to temptation, the first place that I would encourage you to look is to look at your prayer life to look at your prayer life and say, am I fervent in prayer? Because what prayer ultimately does is it demonstrates your dependence on God. It demonstrates your dependence on God, which says, I cannot get through another second of this life unless you show up, God, unless you are here. And this is why we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. You are always dependent on God. There's never a time where you don't need to pray. And it's also why we are told uh, in Psalm 66, 18, where he says this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would, have not li- would not have listened. That's that confession, getting that sin out of, our, out of our, uh, our lives. And this is why James, in James 5, 16, says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is why Jesus tells us the parable in Luke 18, 1, where he says this, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. We must always be in prayer. We must always be confessing our sin and drawing close to God. We're in a battle for the souls of the men, women, and children on this island, this country, and beyond. Therefore, we must be in fervent prayer for our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow students, and everyone that we come into contact with. One more prerequisite for prayer is that those who are engaging in it must be unified. And we can actually see all of this in verse 8. Once again, Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without wrath, without anger, or quarreling. When he says holy hands, he's not talking about hands that have been sanitized over and over again, right? What he's talking about is a holy life represented in the holy hands. If you've ever heard the phrase um, that says this, he has blood on his hands, what it's saying is that this person is responsible for the death of these people. Even though he may not have physical blood on his hands, it's saying you are responsible. And so our hands, uh, holy hands represent a holy life. 
Another name for a holy life is a righteous life. And once again, again, James 5.16 says this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you are not living a holy life, then by implication, you will not have power in your prayers. You get that? If you're not living a holy life, then you will not have power in your prayers. Proverbs 15, 29 makes this point when it says this, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So in addition to living a righteous life, we must be unified when we come together to pray for those who don't know Jesus. And Paul says that you cannot pray effectively for the lost if you can't even get along with one another. You hear that? You can't pray effectively for the lost if you can't even get along with one another. You cannot say, um, I-, I care so much about my neighbors, but I actually can't stand the people who come to church with me. No, that doesn't compute with God. We must be unified. So let's just take a, a brief look at these two words that are used here, anger and quarreling, and see how they apply to us. Uh, anger indicates the absence of, uh, of patience, the absence of kindness, the absence of forgiveness. Um, all these things are absolutely essential to a relationship. Because let's face it, we make each other mad, right? We rub each other the wrong way. I don't care who you are. I got really, really good friends in this church that I have made angry over and over again. And as you've heard me say before, it's not like I wake up in the morning and like, hey, I haven't ticked this person off in a while. What can I do to make them angry? It's just because I am selfish and I see my passions and this is how I think things should be done or this is how I make decisions. And they don't do it that way. They don't see it that way. And so what happens is that we start to make each other angry. We rub each other the wrong way. And I'm telling you what, if I did not receive forgiveness from friends, if I did not receive mercy and kindness, I would have no friends at all. And you would have no friends at all either. Because we're all fallen sinners. And so putting aside that wrath, putting aside that anger, and saying, you know what, you just messed up again. But I know that you're a fallen sinner just like I am. And I'm patient with you. And I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to show kindness to you. It's absolutely essential. The word quarreling is an interesting word. It means disputes. Disputes that people have. And, and I was thinking about this. What in the church leads to anger and disputes? What in the church leads to anger and disputes? And you might say, well, everything, right? Everything in the church leads to anger and disputes. And you wouldn't be far from the truth because I have actually heard of churches splitting. And someone actually, um, a visitor today, uh, was talking about how there was a, a split in their church over something that was in the church that was neutral. Someone didn't want it. Others did want it. And the church split as a result of that. And so these things that happen, everything, almost anything can, ha- uh, can cause divisions in the body of Christ. But I believe that the main things that cause uh, anger and disputes in the church and really anywhere uh, are found in our differences. It's found in the fact that we are all different from one another. We're all unique, right? Well, you might say we're spiritual snowflakes, but I don't want you to think like I'm calling you something that I'm not, right? But we are all spiritually unique. We have our own gifts, our own passions, our own desires, and those will clash with other people. We have our own personalities, and we have our own uh, parenting practices or musical preferences or, 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 or doctrinal beliefs. We don't all agree 
straight down the line with everything that everyone else in this church agrees with or believes. And I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, the most heartbreaking aspect of my job is when divisions start to rise, arise in the church. I've been in several uh, churches. I've been in church ever since I was uh, three years old, and I've been involved uh, heavily in four different churches from Michigan to Missouri, Kansas, uh, and now in Texas, and I see it all the time. I see divisions. I see fights. I see quarrels that rise between uh, people, and I've discovered that unity is very, very hard to maintain. Why is that? Well, I think there, there are several reasons, and I just want to share a few of them. And maybe some of these will resonate with you. Maybe you got others. Maybe you won't, dis, uh, maybe you won't agree with me uh, here. But I just want to share some of the thoughts that I have observed over um, the last uh, 40-some years that I've been in the church and just observing these things. The first uh, reason that I think it's so difficult for us to maintain unity is because of a, a misunderstanding regarding how we are different and why that is good that we're different. I think there's a misunderstanding of, uh, of, of how we are different and why that's a good thing. If you were to read Ephesians 4, what you would see is that Paul says this. He says, we are one. We are to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are one. And then as soon as he, as soon as he finishes saying we are one, he says, but we're also many. We're also diverse. We all have different callings. Some are apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists. We're all different. But then he says there's a purpose for that diversity, and the purpose for that diversity is so that we would all be one, right? So that we would all come back together. The differences are not meant to tear us apart. They're meant to pull us together. Unfortunately, because we let Satan go unchecked so often, those differences between us become our greatest source of division. And that's what happens. Well, that's one reason that I see that there's divisions in the church and it's hard to maintain unity. Another reason that unity is so hard to maintain is um, because I think we have a hard time distinguishing between what a biblical mandate is and what a good suggestion is. Distinguishing between a biblical mandate, this is forbidden in the Bible, and a good suggestion. And what many will do is they will take a good suggestion, try to make it into a biblical mandate, and then impose that on the rest of the people. And that's a very, very dangerous thing, and it pushes a lot of people away because they can't go to Scripture and say, this is why you can't do this. They can only say, this is why I think you shouldn't do this. Let me just give you just one example. TV, all right? TV, there's no question that spending hours in front of the TV is a waste of time. There's no question that there's a lot of immoral shows on TV, but because of that, can you conclude that, therefore, it is a sin to have a TV? And I would say, no, you can't conclude that. You cannot say that it is a sin to have a TV. Just because you have that conviction doesn't mean that you can push it on someone else. Now, if someone's telling you that they're watching a show that's full of immorality, yes, you can come alongside of them and say, this should not be watched by a Christian. But to just make a blanket statement saying, no, there's so much bad that you shouldn't have a TV at all, and if you do— then you are sinning. So that's another reason, just this misunderstanding, this, this taking a biblical, a good suggestion and making it into a biblical mandate. Another reason that I think it's hard to maintain unity in the church is uh, what I, I, I was trying to figure out how to phrase this, but uh, I came up with a unhealthy balance between doctrine and practice. 
an unhealthy balance between a doctrine and practice. There are some in any church, every church that I've been in, that will emphasize doctrine above everything else. And they may look down at others who are not, who are not as a, a theologically astute as they are, not as learned as they are, and say, you should be as learned. You should take this seriously. And the implication is they're not taking it seriously. But it's all about doctrine. It's all about making sure that all of our theological I's are dotted and all of our theological T's are crossed. And the attitude is almost like before we can do anything, we need to make sure that we've nailed down every point of doctrine. Others would say, mm, doctrine's too confusing. You start to talk about this stuff and, and my eyes just glaze over. Let's just do what the Bible says. Let's just get out there and start to do that and, 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 and love people the way that the Bible says to love them. And they look at other, those, those people who are doctrinally minded and they're like, you're devoid of the Spirit. All you want to do is study. You're just cold and theological. And that's it. And what I want to say is that we need a balance in the church. We need a balance because right practice— Actually, doing ministry always comes out of right thinking. Did you hear that? Right practice, what you're doing, always comes out of right thinking because you could go out in the name of Jesus and not even really know about the Jesus that you're talking about. Because there's a lot of cults and a lot of religions that talk about Jesus, but they're not talking about him in the same way that we are. So you better know what you mean when you say Jesus. Right? So right practice comes out of right thinking, and right thinking should produce right practice, right? The way that I think, if I, if I just study, 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 and I love my knowledge, and I never get out and share that, that knowledge is useless to me. I have become a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. So there needs to be a balance. And let's just face it, and I love this. Let's face it, that there are some in every church that are more theologically minded. They love to study. They love to study the deep things of the Bible. And they can, they can understand these things even better than I can understand them. And I love that. And then they, they have the ability to read these deep theological books and understand them. And others may never pick up Jonathan Edwards, may never pick up these other deep theologians, but they just love to get out and to meet people and to, and to bring people, invite people into the church. They don't know a whole lot about uh, the Bible and these deep doctrines. They can't understand the difference between supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism. They just know that they love Jesus. And they just want to serve him in that way. And here's what I want to say about this. Both are important in the church, right? Both are important in the church. And both need to work together in the church. The point is that we are all different, but those differences, in my opinion, show us our need for one another, don't they? They show us our need because the person who's not that theologically sound is looking at the person who is, who knows their stuff, who can explain that stuff, and saying, I am so thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful that I can bring friends into this church that you can explain the gospel to that you can explain the deep things because they're asking questions and I don't know how to answer those questions, but I know that you can. And so you see how they work together. Those who have that ability to go out and it doesn't matter who they talk to, they'll talk to anyone. They'll make anyone feel uncomfortable. And those who are others are just like, there's no way that I could ever talk to anyone other than my wife, right? There's no way. I just don't feel comfortable doing that. But it's wonderful because then when they come together, the one says, hey, I'm bringing this person to you. I can't answer their questions. Can you answer them for them? And they're like, yes, I will. 
And this is how we work together and we celebrate those differences. We don't look down on others because they have different gifts or different passions. We celebrate our diversity and we work together. Just like our physical bodies work together, right? I love what Paul says. Your whole body is not a hand, right? If it was a hand, there'd be no eyes to see what to grab, right? There'd be no arm to actually reach out. You need it all. You need it all. Let me just paint a, a picture. I was just thinking about this this past week, and um, when I th- started to think about divisions in the church and how people uh, view certain things and how, my, how, how the tendency is to look down on others because they're not doing this and they should be doing that and, and they're not doing this and, and they should be doing that. And I was thinking that we're all different. We're all unique and that's a good thing. But I was, I was thinking like, let's, let's just go through an exercise right here and see what it would be if we divided the church in ways that everyone was only hanging out with people who are just like them. Okay? So let's take the first division, and let's just break down the middle, male and female. Okay? Males and females are different. They look different. Um, I don't want to be stereotypical, but a lot of ways they act different, right? They think different. So we're just going to divide the church right down there. So we have a male church and a female church. Now, immediately, there's going to be— certain comfort level that is with that because we're going to talk in a couple of weeks a very difficult um, uh, sermon when we talk about uh, the fact that Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. All right, so now if that's the case, then the females don't have to worry about that. The limitation is taken away because they're only teaching females oh, in their church and the males are only teaching males in their church. So we're divided down the middle there. So now we don't just have one church. Now we have two churches. Now let's take those two churches and let's further divide them between introverts and extroverts. Because introverts and extroverts are really, really different, right? Some of you are laughing already because you're either an introvert or an extrovert. Um, Introvert gets a lot of energy uh, from being alone. An extrovert gets a lot of energy from being with other people and they really can't understand why do you want to be with so many people? Why do you want to be alone, right? And so it just goes back and forth. Let's talk about this in worship for a second. We have this thing— Uh, that we normally do. We didn't do it today because of uh, the coronavirus, but we have this thing called greeting time. And it's about five, yes, thank you. It's about five minutes uh, on a Sunday morning. I have talked with some of you. I have seen some of you. Those who are extreme introverts, you have written all over your face, don't touch me, don't come near me, don't talk to me, right? And you are very careful not to make eye contact with anyone because that might invite them, right? Oh, I looked at them. Oh, they're going to come over, right? That five minutes to an introvert seems like five hours. They're like, oh my goodness, when is this going to end, right? Then on the other end of the extreme, you have the extroverts, those extreme extroverts who have never met a stranger and they're like, everyone loves a hug, bring it in, right? And you're just like, no, don't touch me. They're like, oh, come on, you like that. And you're just like, oh, why are you touching me, right? If you were to ask the, the extroverts, that five minutes seems like five seconds. Ah, Brent's already playing. I got to go back, you know? And they just want to keep talking and talking. If I were to ask who thinks that we should eliminate that time, that greeting time, the introverts would jump to their feet and say, yes, there's no point of it at all. It distracts from worship. We shouldn't be doing it at all. The extroverts would be saying, no, there's there's so many people who come late and so many people who leave right away. This is my time to connect with people, and I love connecting with people. I love that time. 
All right, so we have that division there between introverts and extroverts. And I know I'm being stereotypical. There's some introverts that are okay uh, with talking to people, but by and large, um, we have that. And I know who you are. I see you every Sunday. Anyway, so now we, not just, now we don't just have two churches. Now we have four churches, right? Where we're just going into our own uh, places. Now let's just go one more division here. Um, and let's just talk about preferred elements of worship in a church service. There are certain people who think that we should sing more and have less teaching. And then there are others who think that we should have more teaching and less singing. There's a thing that goes on the island called United Worship, uh, where uh, every once in a while the churches on the island will get together for about an hour and a half to two hours of musical worship. I've been to a couple of them, and I cannot sing for an hour and a half. I just don't have a desire to do that. However, if you were to say, hey, there's this conference and there's all these five speakers that are coming in and it's going to be about eight hours of, of teaching, I'd be like, only eight hours? Why only eight hours? And I'm all in, right? This is what I love. This is what I want to do. Other people are like, oh my goodness, 30 minutes and I'm tuned out at that point, right? And so we have these different preferred styles. And once again, what I want to say is this, is that not one is right over the other. They're both talked about in the Bible. There's a whole lot of talking about singing in the Bible. The Psalms, the longest book in the Bible is what? It is music, right? But then there's also Paul who preaches so long that a guy falls out of a window, right? I'm not saying that. That's why we don't have an upper balcony here, all right? But anyway, so and then even let's just talk about the teaching for a second. There are some people, and I've heard this also here, some people who look at my preaching and say, it's too heady, it's too deep. You don't preach to the average person in there, and the average person cannot get what you're talking about. And then there's others who are saying, oh my goodness, I wish that you would go deeper. There's a lot of issues that you didn't even cover in the text. So once again, there's differing views. And then let's talk about music, okay? There's different styles of music, and I'm not talking about bad music. There's songs that we will not play, uh, that we will not sing in here. I'm not talking about theologically horrible songs. I'm talking about preferences, you know. There are some people who are, hymns are the only way, and there are other people who are like, no, contemporary music is the only way, right? Those who are, are, are the hymns only, it seems like uh, to them, uh, they, they believe that the canon of music was closed in 1915 uh, with the death of Fanny J. Crosby, right? She was the last great hymn writer. Ever since then, there's nothing worthy of singing in the church that was written after that time. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those who, if a church is singing songs that are over five years old, it's a dying church. All you're going to attract is old people and stuff like that, right? And so there's these extremes that go on even in our music, and we have to just come down and say, what is, is this a preference or is this a biblical mandate once again? And so if we were looking, if you were keeping track, now we're not at just four churches. Now we're at eight to 16 different churches. If we're just dividing up, this is what I prefer. This is what I prefer. This is how I am. This is how I am. And we could go on and on, but you get the point. And if you don't get the point, then let me explain it just quickly here. The next time that you are in disagreement with someone in the church, here's, I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself a, a number of questions. The first one is this. Is this issue that I'm in disagreement with them an essential issue that cuts to the heart of the gospel? Is it an essential issue that cuts to the heart of the gospel, or is it a secondary issue, or is it even a personal preference that I have? Because if it's a, if it's a, 
if it's an essential issue, like I stand up here and say, Jesus is one of many ways to the Father. That's an essential issue, and you have every right to run as fast as you can and to disassociate with me because I am teaching a false gospel, okay? That is an essential issue. But you have to ask yourself, is this an essential issue or is this a secondary issue or just a personal preference? A second question that I would encourage you to ask is this. Is this something that everyone should have a conviction about? Or is this a personal conviction of mine? Because Paul in, in Romans chapter 14 verse 22 says this. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. He's saying you're going to have personal convictions. Some, in, in that context, he's saying some are okay eating meat sacrificed to idols. Others are not. You have that as your, some hold this day above, uh, certain days above all other days. Some just hold every day the same. Have that as your personal conviction. There are things. Let's go back to the TV, right? Someone might say, you know, for me, I just cannot have a TV. It's too tempting to, to waste my time in front of it. And so I have decided for me and my family, we will not have a TV. Others will say, I do have a TV and I use it moderately. I use it to watch the news. I use it to do this or whatever it is. You have different convictions. A third question that I would encourage you to ask yourself is this. Am I seeing this from all angles or am I just seeing it from my limited perspective? Now, your perspective may be the right perspective to where you have to go up to someone and say, hey, what you're doing based on the Bible is wrong. There's no question about that. But say, am I, is this how I would handle this situation? And does that mean that this is the only way that this can be handled? And we can get into personalities uh, and, and stuff like that, how people make decisions, but just understand that people act in different ways. Going back to the story as we close that I shared in the beginning about the, um, the life-saving stations, here's what I want to ask you. Are we so focused on our differences and making the church, uh, conforming the church into the way that we think it should be that we've forgotten the mission, the ultimate mission of the church, which is to seek and to save that which was lost? Are we so worried about this or that that we forgot that there's people in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment that don't know Jesus, and that if they died, they would spend an eternity away from him? And are you willing to acknowledge our differences, celebrate those differences where there's not sin involved, right? And then press forward with a unified purpose of seeing lost people come to Christ. Paul, Paul wants us to live holy lives and he wants us to be unified in spirit. And this is what my desire is too. And so I would encourage you to examine your hearts. See if there's anyone in here or anyone, I know people are visiting, see if there's anyone in your church back home that you have a disagreement with and say, is this a legitimate disagreement? Is this an essential issue? Or is it something that we can work out and, 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 just, and just agree to disagree on this? And then if it is a legitimate issue, then seek to correct them. How can I correct this person in love? I got the Bible that backs me up right here. How can I do it in love? But make sure that you allow freedom where the Bible allows freedom as well. And that you're not imposing on someone, uh, someone on something, something on someone that the Bible never does. And then finally, make sure that your agenda actually lines up with God's agenda as well. 
what is most important to God. And I need to do the same because I have my little um, passions as well. And, th- and I see things that this is how things should be done. And I need to check that as well. Maybe thinking about it this way as we close will help. Um, thinking about what really matters. Let's say that tomorrow a severe persecution broke out in the church to where um, our brothers and sisters were being dragged off to jail. Some were being beaten and killed in the streets, and our church had to go underground. We had to meet in secret, okay? And what I want to ask you this, would you refuse to worship with someone because they wanted to sing contemporary worship songs and you only wanted to sing hymns? Would you disfellowship with someone because they believed in the doctrine of election and you believed more in free will? Would you disassociate with someone because of these things? Would you refuse to worship? Would you hold a grudge? Or would the greater need, the greater urgency that people are dying, that people that don't know, that there's a lot of people that don't know Christ, and would you get out there and spread the gospel with them? Let's not let our prayers be hindered as we seek to see people come to Christ. Let's come together as a church. Let's pray fervently so that people can come to know Christ to the glory of God and for the good of Galveston, the United States, and the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that if I have presented this in a way uh, that was unnecessarily offensive, Lord, I, that you know that that was not my intention. I pray, God, that we would not put up our, our walls and say, this doesn't apply to me, but that we would examine our hearts and, and we would say, yes, this is, this is an area where I need to work this out with this person. And I pray, God, that you would, you can only, only you can create unity in, in a world that is full of sin. And I pray, God, that we, as your people, would be diligent to maintain that unity, to understand our differences, to love our differences, and to say, I am so glad that you're in this church. I'm so glad that where I am strong, uh, that where I am weak, you are strong, and vice versa. And I pray, God, that we would work together for the glory of God and the good of this island and beyond. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.